Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Seattle on Tap. <laughs> I am Courtney Jacobson. And I am Ashley Toten. <laughs> and I apparently don't know my name because we just had to do that <laughs> twice. No, that was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll put it in the bloopers, maybe not. We'll have to see. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, boy. So... How are ya? Uh, good. Very good. I went and got a great massage on Tuesday. Um, nice. And for the first time since before COVID, I found a place that is doing cupping. Oh. And so I look like I got in a fight with like some sort of an octopus creature and have like suction cup marks all over my whole back, but worth yeah. it. Yeah, cool. <laughs> I've heard, like, I've had enough like one or two other friends that told me about that and loved it. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Nice. What have you been up to? Uh, lots of camping. <laughs> like every weekend this month. <laughs> it's been fun though, but um, you know, weekends are usually kind of my get things done type of, you know, time and edit the podcast and start some research. And so, you know, been changing some stuff up, mm -hmm. <laughs> cramming a bunch of extra things in the week, been super busy at work. So just, you know, nonstop going, going, going. Then I lay down for my evening nap and then I get back up and I just go, go, go. <laughs> I'm starting to like come around on the idea of camping, but maybe not in the way you think. <laughs> I have decided that I might need to buy a van. Oh, okay. That I can camp in that it has like, you know, like one of those Volkswagen vans or whatever. Mm -hmm. Because I realized how much cheaper if you go to a campsite, for example, that has like shower bathroom access. Yeah. That it's so much cheaper than renting an Airbnb or a hotel or whatever to just get out of town for a weekend. Yeah. Um, but my coworker, Jean, and her wife, Wendy, I think, I don't know if I told you this already. You did, yeah. But but they we went on a, recording. Oh, yeah. my God. They went on a camping trip and they have an SUV, long story short. And they put a full-size air mattress in mm. the back of the, the um, SUV to go camping and her wife posted a picture and Jean's face is literally like two inches from the roof of the car. <laughs> and they were like, ooh. She's not a big person. She's, she's very, a very tiny person. Yes. Like petite and she's thin and not tall. Yes. Taller than me. Yes. But not by a lot. <laughs> It was so funny, but they were like, yeah, we were realizing we need to get gear to do this, but it's really worth it. And I was like, you know, I could camp if I could lock my doors. Yeah. I'm just very opposed to like sleeping a on the ground because I'm old and that hurts. Thanks. And secondly, in a tent where I could just get murdered in my sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we generally always go in a group. And um, or we go up to our little piece of property where it's hard to describe, but you're, you're definitely not alone, but you're also in an area where you have to have membership to 
be in there. Okay. So it's like controlled access basically. Yeah. And that's cool. It's super duper safe, like boring safe. <laughs> I am down with some boring safe when I'm camping. Oh yeah. Same. <laughs> I'm down for that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. The worst thing that happens is you might hear the Blue Jays a little too early in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Blue Jays are such jerks. So right on cue, she grabs her beer. What you drinking over there? Um, as you pointed out, it's really funny because last week's episode, um, I drank an NA. Yeah. Um, but this week I'm also drinking an NA. Um, I keep getting really good feedback about this at work. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to try this. Mm -hmm. um, it's a brewery I like um, a lot. And it turns out it's fucking delicious. Um, this is the self-care series from Three Magnets, um, and it is the Palisade Pale. Um, and like, it's so there in Olympia, Washington, for folks that are not from here. Mm -hmm. It has less than a half a percent, 0.5 percent ABV or less is what they describe. Um, but I was going to read this little um, note that their brewer, Aaron, um, posted in, about it. Uh, and it says... I'm on a mission, a mission to make some of the hops from my earlier brewing years sing. Palisade hops out of Yakima were used frequently in delightful session IPAs at the brewery I worked for years ago. And I thought that it would also be quite lovely in this self-care iteration. Using local base malts that were grown and malted in Washington state, we worked in some Munich and oats, Munich and oats, sorry, uh, which made for a great combination and many of the pale ales that I've been inspired by. The supporting hops in the spear are Amarillo and Galena. Um, we did a smaller volume of hops in the Whirlpool in addition to the small palate dry hop addition to balance the bitterness of the kettle hops. We're really digging the apricot, lemon, and floral notes they put off, signed by Aaron Blondin, who evidently is a listener, I just found out, when he delivered the palate of this beer. And I totally had a like, oh, no, you stop it. No, tell me more. <laughs> I love it. So to Aaron, um, thank you for listening and your wife, obviously also. Thank you. Um, it was kind of fun to hear that you guys listen to the weird shit that Courtney and I talk about. I, <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. And this is fucking delicious, by the way, if you're not drinking for whatever reason, or you just need something to like fill in so you don't get fucking wasted at a party. This is like such a good NA. Like it, it tastes like I'm drinking a very smooth pale. Very good. Well, I am drinking the most local beer I could potentially drink. <laughs> drinking a Gordon Jacobson special. Nice. <laughs> uh, my husband brewed a beer and turns out it's really good this time. Um, I mean, yeah, occasionally they don't turn out great, but that's what home brewing's like. <laughs> um, this one is going to be gone probably too fast because we're both sipping it up. It's very delicious. So um, he used a recipe 
guideline, if you will, that touts that it is a fruit bazooka New England IPA. So basically just lots of fruitiness, but it's not fruity in the sense that like a sour or anything sweet or anything like that. It's just super refreshing. It's really well balanced. Um, on the very first, I'd say one or two sips, you catch um, not too much, but it's a good bit of bitterness that um, folks in the Pacific Northwest would very much appreciate when they're probably going, Ugh, I hate all these <laughs> fruity IPAs, blah, blah, blah. They would like this a lot because it's got a great balance of that nice, hoppy, you know, hit you right from the beginning. But not too much because it also is still really well balanced and has that refreshing citrus fruity deliciousness there are a shit ton of hops in this though lay it on me so he started off with um azaka citra yukonot mosaic and then Two to three days later, added some dry hop, uh, more of the Yukonot and Mosaic, and left those in for about, what did he say? He ended up doing seven days. And the end result, oh, and then he used Imperial, Imperial Yeast A20, which is a juice yeast. Um, to add that more fruity, juicy flavor and that cloudiness even more so. Um, what else we got? <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> I asked him the other day. I'm not seeing it written down. I asked him the other day what the um, ABV was on it. I was just going to ask that. And he goes, uh, it's about five, five and a half. But also that was midway through his third beer. And he had already just admitted that he was already feeling a bit buzzed off two and a half, which is, I mean, not my husband. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to venture to say it's probably more like a six to seven at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, that's the fun in home brewing. <laughs> I guess we'll see how silly you get tonight, huh? <laughs> <laughs> he uh, tried a new technique, which is... Um, essentially putting a specific kind of salt to treat the water first mm. and it helps with get ready to kind of giggle because if you're as much of a child as me helps with head retention <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's true because 
like we you pour it and it keeps a good you know not too huge but a good foamy head on it for a good long while it looks delicious yeah it's i mean structure color and balance of flavor wise this i would buy this like many cases the good news is you don't have to i know because it's living in your basement it is it's on tap in my basement it's like turning into audrey too down there being like courtney drink me yeah <laughs> all day when i'm working and i'm like <sighs> it's not that far away <laughs> no i'm working <laughs> boo yeah um, should we tell these kitties about some changes that might be coming up yes. here soon? So do you want to go first and kind of start us off? Um, the present? Well, I guess we, so first of all, as I just said, we have some changes coming next month. Um, we want to give you more mm -hmm. is all I'm going to really say. We have some details we want to hammer down first we want to bring you guys more things but mm -hmm. there will be changes and ways to make that happen because we only have so much time in a week or mm -hmm. two yes on top of that we had a little sit down a little talking to blix listened to our last episode Mm -hmm. sat us down and said all right ladies i've already noticed that morale has gotten low the energy level could use some boosting he and is a very wise boy he is and it was uh confirmed when he listened to our most recently released episode because that was recorded in january and we sounded a lot, um, well, it was a lot more fun to listen to. So he wanted us to find a way to make that happen some more. So stay tuned. We have a few more scheduling tweaks, I guess, to uh, work out. And we will give you the final details next week. Mm-hmm. It's true stories. Yeah. Blix knows what he's talking about, you guys. <laughs> All right, here we go. So I am doing the story of Polly Class. Hmm. So Polly Hannah Class was born January 3rd, 1981 to Mark and Eve Class. When Polly was two, her parents got divorced, which as a person whose parents have got divorced very young also during this time period, I'm like, I feel you, girl. Yeah, same. Um, as a result of this divorce, Polly ended up living with her mom primarily, which tends to happen a lot um and again young parents they moved around a lot couldn't quite find a place until finally her mom found home in petaluma california hmm. her mom met and married a man named alan nickel and the two produced a child giving polly a half-sister named annie in 1987. the nickels marriage also didn't last too long 
But Polly and her mom and her sister lived an otherwise pretty normal life in Petaluma. And throughout her childhood, my understanding is that Polly still had like regular visits with her dad. Like there was no weird family problems with, you know, they got divorced, but they weren't like fucking with each other and Either shit one of like them that. Was a total deadbeat. Yeah. And so Courtney, you and I were kids of this time frame. Mind you, I didn't grow up in a small town, but I can only imagine that the three of us were probably living pretty parallel lives as far as activities were concerned. And we're probably like riding bikes and playing with friends and probably jumping rope and playing hopscotch and whatever the fuck else, but definitely having sleepovers with friends. Um, which I did a lot. I was like always having sleepovers with my close girlfriends, um, probably some of whom listen to this. So hi guys. Um, anyhow, so when Polly asked her mom um, to have a couple of her schoolmates over on October 1st of 1993, of course her mom said yes, very normal shit. And you know, your kid's wanting to stay home. You're like, yeah, please. So Polly was now 12. Um, and she and her two classmates, Kate and Jillian, who were presumably the same age, they all went to school together, played board games and had ice cream. And because it was about Halloween, they started, you know, trying on costumes and kind of modeling them for each other. And finally, the girls were like, you know, probably hopped up on sugar and God knows what else. And we're like, we should probably go to bed. And so Polly goes to grab some sleeping bags for her guests. Polly opens her bedroom door and finds a man holding a knife and a duffel bag in her hallway. What the fuck? The man immediately grabs Polly and held the knife to her throat and walks into the room and tells the girls that he'll slash all their throats if any of them make a peep. So he gets the girls all back into the room and starts tying all of them up using bedding and electrical cords from the bedroom itself. Just whatever he can find is what he's binding these girls up with. Jesus. Polly's two friends got pillowcases pulled over their head and were no longer able to see what was happening. But one of the girls overheard Polly very calmly say, please don't hurt my mom and my sister through sniffles and tears, which is like so fucking heartbreaking. The man then told the girls to count to a thousand and then fled the scene with Polly. Wow. A few hours later in, rural, in a rural area of Santa Rosa, which was like 20 miles north or so mm -hmm. um, of where Polly was abducted, um, a young woman was just finishing up a babysitting night. And as she was leaving her employer's driveway, she looks over and notices a quote unquote suspicious vehicle um, stuck in the ditch on the family's property. And it, it spooked her enough because of the time of the day that she chose not to turn around and go back and sh chose to not stop. But as soon as she got home, she called the property owner who she was babysitting for and let her know what she had seen. Hmm. And the lady of the house, which we'll get in, you're going to hear quite a bit about her, but that lady's spidey senses are like one hundo. Like this lady deserves a fucking medal for her spike senses. Um, the lady of the house decides better to be safe than sorry because it's just she and her daughter out in the middle of nowhere, essentially, to pack her daughter up in the car and leave the house. Cause she's like, uh, this is kind of sketching me out. Let's just not risk it. 
So she hops in her car and starts driving down her driveway, which is a really long windy driveway um, out onto the main road. And on her way down, she passes a man she did not recognize walking along her driveway. Mm. So she just kept on driving until she found a service station down the road and called 911. Yikes. So Courtney, this is where you're going to be not happy. You're going to be pissed off about this. At the time, the woman called 911. Again, this is hours after Polly has been kidnapped. The local deputies had no fucking clue about Polly's abduction because their radios were not tuned to the same frequency or channel as the Petaluma Police Department. So they have no idea that any of this has happened. The deputies go to the scene where this car is stuck in a ditch or vehicle and found 39-year-old Richard Allen Davis, apparently with like plant debris in his hair and looking super disheveled and also sweaty, like visibly very sweaty. Um, And also he has an open beer next to him. Like he's standing there basically just drinking a beer at his vehicle, which the car was registered to him and they ran his plates and his license, driver's license, but they didn't find anything that they could like arrest him for or anything like that. So the deputies go up and they tell the property owner, like, hey, maybe since we can't really do anything here, maybe you can perform a citizen's arrest on Davis for trespassing on your property. And so, right. So fun fact, evidently under California state law, penal code 837, a civilian can make an arrest when a perpetrator commits a misdemeanor in their presence or commits a felony and the citizen has reasonable cause to believe it was committed by the perpetrator. And if you walk up and you go, I arrest you, the cops can arrest them for whatever the offense is. And they were trying to get this lady who's terrified with her own, with her child, with a strange man on her property, who's clearly feeling some bad feels. They want her to walk up and and yell out, "Citizens arrest!" Or what? Well, right? Can't she just tell them, like, "Yo, he's trespassing"? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, why does she have to do it? That doesn't even make sense. I mean, I fucking so again. So for this to have worked, the property owner would have had to walk down to Davis and yell, I arrest you. And then they would have been able to do it, which she decided she was not comfortable doing, which I completely understand. But it's also like, no. I mean, I'd be like, I feel like that is your job. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Yes. That's why you have that badge thingy and the and why i called you and the whole training stuff (laughs) that you did remember that part there no all right then i'm pretty sure that's what that was for so after the deputies searched his vehicle and made him pour out that open can of beer that he was consuming upon their arrival they called him a tow truck and they pulled him out of the ditch and filed a field interrogation report with all of his info on it and then sent him on his way. So just after Thanksgiving, so mind you, Polly goes missing October 1st. We're now Thanksgiving. So just after Thanksgiving, the property owner goes out and she had just had a bunch of work done on her property. 
and decides she's going to go out and kind of inspect it and make sure she had some trees removed and some other kind of big deal shit. So she just wanted to make sure they didn't fuck anything up and that they actually did the shit they said they did. Check on the work that you paid to have done. Yeah, makes sense. And um, so she walks out and by now, obviously she's heard about the kidnapping. It's been on the news. It's been a whole fucking thing. She walks out and finds a torn pair of ballet leggings, as well as several other items that were identified as items missing from the scene of Polly's disappearance. Hmm. So she immediately calls the sheriff's office and she reports what she finds. Mm -hmm. The local departments start reviewing all the calls made around, like on the day Polly went missing and around that area to see if anybody saw anything or whatever. And they pull up her call. And so authorities were now looking hard at Richard Allen Davis. And this shithead had quite the rap sheet. Oh, imagine that. Yeah, fancy that. Why? Why am I not surprised? (laughs) Previous offenses included burglary and kidnapping. Uh, In 1976, he attempted to abduct a woman by pulling her into his car. Thankfully, she was able to escape. She kind of fought him off and got out of the car, called the police, um and he was sent off for a psychiatric evaluation and somehow escaped from the psychiatric ward and then that same day broke into a couple's house where he tied them up and it was not clear during my research if he had any intent to actually harm those residents or it was just to burglarize or both um but he was sentenced to six years And in 1984, he was arrested for kidnapping again. Um, And this time he received a 16-year sentence, but wait for it. He only served eight years of that sentence before he was released. And had he not been released, we would not be telling the story right now, just so I can point that out to you. Super cool. Yeah. So aside from his previous convictions, investigators are, and whoa, hello, that's not a word. Investigators also found a palm print at the scene of the kidnapping that matched prints they had of Davis on like almost perfectly. Mm-hmm. So with all this info, the local police and FBI launched a search party um, on that property, the woman's property and all the surrounding areas looking for Polly. Police had not yet made an arrest because they were still holding up hope that Polly would be found in his custody and alive. So while they searched for the first couple of days, they just kind of followed him and were keeping an eye on what he was doing. Um, Other local authorities offered assistance to search for Polly and came from 24 different agencies. Um, And this was one of, still to this day, this is one of the biggest searches ever conducted in California history that included over more more than 4,000 people over a two-month time period. Wow. Which is crazy. Um, Also, during the search for Polly, Winona Ryder, of all people, who I didn't realize, she actually was born, not born, she was raised in Petaluma. Um, She heard about the story and was so upset that a little girl from her hometown went missing that she offered a $200,000 reward for the safe return of Polly out of her own pocket. She was just like, I will pay the fucking reward. Just get that kid back home. And so, (laughs) excuse me. Um, Authorities finally brought Davison for questioning 
And on December 4th, 1993, Davis finally confessed to having kidnapped and killed Polly and offered to take them to her remains. 12-year-old Polly was found right where he said she would be in a shallow grave in Cloverdale, California, 50 miles from where her initial abduction had taken place. Although he confessed, he refused to give any details in regard to the timeline. So authorities kept trying to get him to be like, so after you abducted her, what happened then? He would tell them zero. And so authorities kind of had to put a story together themselves. And they theorized that he probably panicked and killed her after the babysitter and the homeowner both saw him on the property and knew that they were going to call the cops. Mm -hmm. And so he killed her then and hid her and then returned to the scene and later took her body and moved it Yikes! to the grave where they found her. Um, by the time Polly was found, her body was very badly decomposed so much that um, although Polly's nightgown was pulled up above her waist, experts were unable to tell if she had been sexually assaulted, um, but it was very evident that her cause of death was strangulation by means of a rope that had been tied several loops around her neck um, and strangled until she died. Um, the trial was insanely long, um, and during the trial, um, Polly's two friends testified, yeah. both clutching teddy bears and crying through their testimony, describing all of the events of Polly's abduction that they could recall, which... I can't even imagine how fucking traumatized those girls probably still are. Were they in the same courtroom or did they do yeah. that thing where with minors they put them in like a courtroom? I think they were in the same room. Oh, wow. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure. Because a lot of times, um, you know, with minors that are going to be, a, they're going to testify or be a witness or whatever the case is, they'll protect them by mm -hmm. you know putting them in a separate courtroom and it's like a video in and that's very possible but i mean it was the early Ooh. 90s so maybe not because they didn't give a fuck about kids mm. nope their mental state during one of the girls testimony um she said that when davis first entered the room she thought Polly was playing a practical joke on them and trying to scare them. And it took her a while to realize that something was really wrong until he put the pillowcase over her head. And then she was like, oh my God, oh, no. this is real, which I can't even imagine. When Davis's conviction was handed down, he took it upon himself to flip the bird with both fingies at the courtroom camera and then when given the opportunity to speak um, to about his confession, he told the courtroom that Polly's last words were, please don't do it to me like my dad, implying that Polly had been sexually abused by her dad, which naturally sent her dad into a fucking flip out rage in the courtroom. He had to be removed from the courtroom. What a dick. Seriously. And if you look up a picture of him, he is like so creepy and gross. The sentencing judge, Thomas Hastings, remarked that while handing down his sentence um, to death by lethal injection was what he ended up being sentenced with, quote, this is a traumatic and emotional decision for any judge, and it has been made very easy for me today to pronounce this sentence, given your revolting behavior in this courtroom today. 
Davis is still currently on death row in San Quentin State Prison in Marin County, California, where he's now in solitary confinement after he apparently OD'd on drugs and survived while in prison, but also was getting constantly attacked by other inmates because he's a fucking child killer. Yeah. And potentially rapist, hard to say. Most likely. After, oh, to, I, I, uh, yeah, I wouldn't put it past him. He's a real sleazebag. I mean, yeah. After the death of Polly, uh, Winona Ryder starred in the movie Little Women that came out in 1994, which, by the way, I fucking loved when that movie came out. Hello, cute young Christian Bale, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but she decided to dedicate that movie to Polly because it was Polly's favorite book. Which I was like, oh my God. That's Polly's awesome. dad also turned some shit around and his name is Mark. He became a child advocate and started the Class Kids Foundation, which is a public charity organization devoted to preventing crimes against children, assisting in the recovery of missing children and the lobbying for legislation assistance. Um, he even apparently reached out and met with the Smart family after the abduction of Elizabeth Smart to try to help them figure out, yeah. Like, let's join and change some shit around. And mm -hmm. And then also, because I know that some folks are probably thinking about it, because I know I was, mm -hmm. um, and I had to look it up. Since this case, all California Highway Patrol radio systems have been centralized to one 911 dispatch system that is all on the same <laughs> frequency. In Good. addition to this, as we've talked about on another episode, we also now thankfully have the Amber Alert system. Mm -hmm. And on March 8th, 1994, in oh. California, the Three Strikes Act was signed into law, uh, which states that a person's convicted of three violent or serious felonies could receive a life imprisonment, which voters approved 72% in favor of when given yeah. Proposition um, 184. Yeah. So all of those things will hopefully prevent things like this from happening. Although some of the research I read about um, the three strikes law, they were like, so that actually didn't prevent any crime because it turns out people just do bad things. <laughs> and they don't care. Also, a lot of times that gets used racially. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I could see, I actually am glad that you said that because I was like, I kind of want to have a conversation about how that's a good excuse to jail uh, people of color for marijuana charges for mm -hmm. life. Because that's a thing that's happening still. People are still in prison for that shit in California. In other states, not just California. Yeah, I was looking at this and I'm like, oh my gosh, I like we we would have we were in the same grade. Yeah. She was basically just barely over two months younger than me. Yeah. Two months and that six days. When I thought about it, I was like, she's you guys would have been a little older than me, not by a shitload, but we all probably would have played together. Yeah. We would have all been the same age range that would have been at school playgrounds together and shit yep it's so sad I, I i vaguely remember hearing news things about it having grown up in california and being like 
mm-hmm. you know, missing girl, people are searching, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't really get it. You know, when you're that young, you don't really get it. Yeah. Wow. I had, I was, a yeah, when she was abducted, it was, so October 1st, 1993, that was my birthday month. At the end, mm-hmm. I was going to turn 13. Yep. Well, I did. It happened. <laughs> You're like, I didn't feel like it this year. So I just skipped 13 and went straight to 14. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. And so scary. But yeah, do you see what I'm saying about that property owner? She kept being like, yeah, something's really wrong, you guys. Mm-hmm. And was kind of getting blown off. And then when she realized, oh my God, something was really wrong. She immediately called again. Good for her. I know. Heck yeah. And good for Polly's dad. I mean, we say this a lot, how we're, at least I, I mean, we both, are in so much awe of people that can go through such an immense tragedy and somehow rather than completely implode upon themselves which is what i'm sure what i would do um and just completely withdraw from society and all sanity um (laughs) they somehow find a way to make significant change forever in awe of people that can find a way to make that happen and reach out and like with the elizabeth smart case like to reach out to another family is a sensitive thing when they're going through a thing but to be like i'm gonna help you figure this out i'm gonna help you get the best you know investigations we can the best anything i can do to help you guys um that also takes a lot because you don't want to most people are like don't want to deal with the trauma again Mm -hmm. you know i could see myself doing that because i know um like when i i mean so not comparable but my one of my biggest i guess somewhat trauma parts of life um when layla was born super early and like i almost died through all that um one of my friends that I actually knew right about this time hung out had slip slumber parties like probably that same weekend I was at her house uh she had a son I think he's two or three years older than Layla I can't remember exactly but he was born super early and she had a lot of issues and um she reached out to me and just kind of to say like look I know going through all of this you know, seeing your baby that, you know, sort of feeling robbed from all the normal birth stuff that everybody goes through, you know, kind of just reached out and said like, hey, I understand this and you're going to feel, the two of you are going to feel exceptionally alone because nobody understands this. And Mm -hmm. kind of that situation of like, hey, I just want to extend this of, I get you. So if you do need a person that gets you, that you can just vent or whatever it is or ask questions, 
just reaching out my hand to say, hi, I'm here. And so I could see myself doing that because I think um, knowing how that felt for me to have someone say, I get you and it's awful and it's lonely and miserable and it helps to have someone that can kind of get your mental state at that point. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't know if I would have the strength to do the fight that it takes to make actual legislation happen. Like, right. With a, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm fully sane, but somewhat same, sane, sound mind. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I don't, I don't know that I have the strength to do that. That's freaking hard when it's no. not day-to-day -day job <laughs> no i mean that's i mean where do you even start you have to start doing a bunch of research which maybe that's part of it maybe you had like the distraction of having to look yeah all this shit up and all that helps i don't know i mean i could do the research part but there's just so many more steps and so much more of a fight and i think after being pushed back so many times by people that are official I would end up giving up <laughs> being already knocked down so much. I, I mm -hmm. just, again, very much in awe of people that uh, can still keep pushing and fighting for the things that should be happening that are, that is the good, the good changes that need to happen. What we're saying is Mark, we think you're a badass for turning this around to try to do something positive for other kids. So thank you. Him and all the other parents, Amber's mm -hmm. mom. Um, I mean, there's so many. Mm -hmm. Pretty amazing. Wish you have that like twinkle in your eye, like you need a break. Well, it's more that I was looking up at the battery life on my laptop. <laughs> 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 I need to go get the power cord. <laughs> Fine. All right. You know, glamorous things like that. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Well, when we come back, Courtney, I'll have a lot less traumatic story for you. It sounds like. Mm, I think. <laughs> oh, shit. All right, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... Yeah, it's less traumatizing, I think. Cool. All right, time. <laughs> I'm very sober. Don't forget. I know. <laughs> All right, we're back. Okay. So not <laughs> so awful, but uh, not awesome. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay. So I don't know about you, but I do not know really hardly anything about NASCAR. No, nothing. By choice. <laughs> There's lots of turns the same direction. That's about all I know. Yeah, yeah. My, my thoughts on NASCAR basically lumped into just racing like it's not uh my favorite of things because 
my knowledge of it is um, like all the rubber that's used slash, you know, all the tires um, and waste of that. I, I was corrected that a lot of, um, oh shoot, I'm going to forget which one, but there's a specific one of the racing, maybe Formula One, but I'm probably wrong. But they're one of the major types of racing types of cars they use um uh eco-friendly plant-based type fuel interesting i'm not i don't know that that's for all of the racing things so but what i do know specifically of nascar is probably what a lot of other people know is that it started for moonshining I did not know that. Oh, okay. Were so, they like, yeehaw, moonshine, turn right, turn right again. <laughs> so <laughs> there, so it's, I'm going to get this wrong. National Association Stock Car. Uh, American Racing. I forget the other A. I'm, I'm doing it wrong, but it's basically like stock car racing which means you take a regular car originally mm -hmm. and you make it faster and lighter so that you can get your white lightning super quickly from where you're distilling it illegally and then you transport it illegally out to the places that are going to sell it illegally during prohibition and so this, I mean, this sport started out of prohibition, like make that tank of a car as light as you can. It's just a shell. Like a lot of times they would even like take the seats and shit out and just like mm -hmm. be sitting on a little crate. And I mean, like everything that did not absolutely have to be in that car to get it from here to there and carry the actual product, they would just chuck it out because as light as it could be, the faster it would go. And then, of course, they would beef up and put way bigger engines. All right. So we know that this sport started out of illegal needs. Also, uh, strangely enough, people that smuggle drugs and other contraband have very similar attributes as people that choose car racing as a um, not just lifestyle, but career. It is very risky. You have to think fast. You have to essentially be a big gambler. It's all about high risk, high reward. Um, everything for that end result, no matter what. Uh, okay, so with those two things, I'm gonna tell you about NASCAR's Black Thursday. We're also going to talk about some weed. weed. I do like some weed. Weed and NASCAR. So February 18th, 
my friend Tara's birthday, but 1982, the year after she was born. So she turned one. Um, <laughs> February 18th, 1982 will forever be known as Black Thursday within NASCAR. This was the moment that five drivers and a number of mechanics in NASCAR along with, well, they were among about 70 people that were indicted into a, or indicted on a $300 million drug smuggling ring. And yes, that was 1982, $300 million. I did not do the math because $300 million is already above my comprehension. So Mm -hmm. we just know it's so much more. Okay. Um, It was marijuana for sure. Potentially also cocaine, depending on which reports you're reading. So... Definitely later on, there was cocaine in the mix. Uh, All right. So among these people that were indicted within the NASCAR circle were um, the owner of a team called Fast Company Limited. His name was Billy Harvey, William Billy Harvey. Uh, One of his drivers, which was Gary Ballou. Plus, Pee Wee Griffin, also an owner of a a racing team. Herbert Tillman and Pete Pistone, who was a racer, not the famous announcer. Uh, so Billy Harvey and um, Pee Wee Griffin were identified by the FBI as the two main ringleaders of this whole operation. Um, And it had been going since roughly 1976. Um, They had used speedboats to um, smuggle drugs, marijuana, out of the Bahamas and up to Florida, and then of course, dispersed throughout. At first it was like just down kind of in the panhandle sort of area, like the the Carolinas and Georgia and, I mean, race, main racing areas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then of course, over the years, very quickly, It expanded and it got, it was pretty much all over the U.S., like even up here into Seattle that those drugs were going. So Harvey, uh, Billy Harvey was kind of the main guy because he had known, uh, I guess, their main contact in the Bahamas since they were kids. And he had wanted to fund his racing, in loose terms, career. He raced cars for a while. Wasn't super successful, um, but he loved it. He kept at it. And then eventually he got to the point where he wanted a whole team. He wanted 
winners. And <laughs> feel that. And I mean, unless you get a sponsor that is really wealthy and you're just it's not gonna happen because it is insanely expensive to race, let alone own more than one car, let alone a team. So um, like just entering the races is crazy expensive. So this uh, smuggling operation helped him fund his racing habit, I guess. <laughs> and um, like I said, so outfitted speedboats utilizing some friends of his in the industry that were really great with machines and driving fast and <laughs> so he had several engineers pit crew men help him really outfit these boats to where they were going even faster than you could imagine and um well they were hiding a lot of drugs and um so fbi agent joseph v corliss was said harvey's ring smuggled at least a million pounds of cannabis into the u.s each year from 19 yeah from 1976 to 1982 and three made they profited 300 million dollars annually can you even i can't i can't even no. can't even fathom it, it just shit yeah for six years that's wow so, um, like I said, started because he wanted to fund his love of racing. Wanted to start his own team eventually, so he did that. Um, one of the people that worked for him and that um, is known to, in some way or another, because nobody really wants to give a straight answer. Um, help out with all of this. Um, was a guy named Mario Rossi. He was an engineer and a very successful uh, crew chief. He also, early on in his career, like more in the early 70s, early to mid 70s, he raced as well. I mean, all these guys definitely raced some of them moved on from that and ended up doing other things but still sticking in the stock car and cart car nascar realm so um in fact mario rossi though was i mean when you say engineer you immediately think of someone that's incredibly intelligent he wasn't just a really smart engineer. He was considered a genius among engineers. This guy built, rebuilt his own car 
when he was seven. Shit. <laughs> and opened his own garage before he was old enough to drive. Like just Wild. was kind of making money and yeah, like he, he was someone, it was just like his parents garage in front of their house and uh, he was in New Jersey. So in a time when it was kind of like greaser time, I mean, he was a kid during like the fifties. And, uh, you know, it's when greasers and fast cars and, you know, all this shit was extra popular. And he's this cute little kid that's more brilliant at half this stuff than most adults around. So he was already successful before he was even legal to drive. Um, so, yeah, he ended up racing for a while. He ended up just getting more into engineering, getting kind of more obsessed with like perfecting certain safety measures because he got tired of seeing his friends die. And he is the reason that we have headrests. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like a pretty important thing. Yeah. At the same time that he was perfecting and like testing out, like figuring out, okay, I know that we need to figure out something about, you know, whiplash with these guys. Um, so, you know, he's figuring out, okay, so I've got to get, put something behind their head to like help stop that from happening. He ended up essentially kind of tipping off the car manufacturers because of course they make sure they pay attention to what racers are and racing engineers are doing when they're putting out stuff so several like it was quite a while before we actually had them in regular people cars he did it first and um they followed suit and the other really big thing that he did was he took a regular seatbelt and because when people are going really high speed, crash into something, and maybe that seatbelt rises up a little bit, the lap part rises up a little bit, it can kill you. Mm-hmm i.e. um oh shoot now i'm gonna forget his name but one of the most famous ones uh now his son like junior dale earnhardt he um it was actually shortly after he died that the racing federation made it mandatory that all uh every race car has the five point harness Mm -hmm. five and six point horn depending on which car but um mario rossi is the one that was like um hmm i feel like we could redo this and he added a second he added another strap that went from the lap belt 
down between their legs so like prevented it from moving up and then he tweaked it some more and so it was i think it was a four point harness when he was done with it and then not long after is when they added another one to two straps to make it like a five or six point harness but if it had been mandatory what he had done what he had invented and improved Dale Earnhardt Jr. would not have died. Wow. Yeah. Like just his invention, like even his design alone, Dale Earnhardt would not have died. So that's crazy. Um, he also, I mean, there were a lot of other things safety wise that he did, but another really kind of um, like made big changes in NASCAR and racing um, that he implemented. He's the one that came up with, which I didn't even know, of course, until doing this research. Um, he's the one that came up with gluing the lug nuts to the wheels for faster pit stops. So instead of like putting the bolt in and then the you attaching the lug nut and like wrestling around with these two parts around the wheel, they glue the lug nut to it. And that's why now they can just go and like just the one tool and go bup, 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 and then you're gone so he shaved off a ton of time just by and they still do that today wild yeah all right so just after um new year's day 1983 so i'll just kind of remind time wise because i just went through a bunch of stuff uh the Black Thursday drug bust happened um, February 18th, 1982, which was like two or three days right before a really huge race. Um, Gary Ballou actually was arrested and then went, he got bailed out. He had a million dollar bail. He got bailed out just in time to race that huge race and he got last it was the first time he ever got last place <laughs> which is kind of like i don't know it's funny to me um maybe shouldn't have been smuggling drugs i don't know but it, maybe. I, mean, it is just, <laughs> I mean maybe cocaine i don't know anyways um okay so february 1982 now we are it has just turned 1983 it's like January 2nd or 3rd, like different reports differ on that. But um, Bill Rossi, who is um, Mario Rossi's son, gets a call from his family to head on over. Come on, come over to the family home, mom's home kind of a deal, um, which is uh, Mario's mom. So matriarch of the family. Um. He gets in, he gets there and uh, immediately finds out that Mario's mom had just received a call from Mario's girlfriend that they didn't know he had named Betty. And she informed them that uh, Mario had just died 
in a plane crash. Oh, no. He was also a pilot. He could rebuild cars. He could drive really fast cars. He could drive really fast boats. He could refit boats to make them not just a regular speedboat, but an insanely fast, way too fast for normal people speedboat. Also, he was a really talented pilot. Like, impressively talented. Okay. Apparently... Normal weather going from Florida to um, the Bahamas. He was flying a small plane and crashed. And aside from Betty, this mysterious Betty, uh, telling uh, Mario Rossi's mom... Your son died. He went down a plane crash. Um, and here's the tail number on the plane that he was flying. Super odd. Um, so, of course, there are, the family is totally shattered. Um, but... It, you know, you, you deal with the initial, oh my God, this is awful. You go through the shock of it and then you start kind of climbing yourself out of it of, okay, well, now we have to obviously like figure out the stuff, you know, like the, are we going to do a memorial? Are we, we got to figure out, did he have life insurance? We got to figure out, did, you know, all the, you know, the bullshit that you got to go through after someone in the family dies. So they're trying to get that stuff squared away and um, trying to, you know, reach out to some of his friends that they knew, you know, they knew he had been working with this racing team and they knew that something crazy had just recently happened and like some of them were in jail, but some of them weren't. And like he was on this, he was the crew chief and engineer for this team that like the owner went to jail you know so um they uh they start you know trying to reach out and be like who's betty do you guys know like what what's even going on was he like he was just here for christmas and he was kind of acting weird but not really um and so Mario's sister, one of his sisters, drove him to the airport um, after Christmas. So he went home to New Jersey, be with his family for Christmas. Uh, on the 29th, he has a flight out of Philadelphia International Airport to fly back to Florida where he had been living. And uh, as he was at home, one of his sisters notices he's got a, a Rolex. She's like, whoa. Hey, Baller, what's up with you? <laughs> what's up with that? That's really nice. That's a really nice watch. And he's like, oh yeah, you like that? Yeah, I've been... 
I came into a little bit of money and like, I guess he had um, spoiled people a little bit more than normal for gifts for Christmas. And his, his sister said that um, in hindsight, like there were a couple things that, that were just kind of off and she just chose at the time to be like, oh, he's just, maybe he's just in a better mood or maybe he's just getting older and so he's caring a little bit more about connections of family. Like he was always really close with family, but he was never a huggy person or more like an affectionate person, but he seemed to be um, a little bit more caring or showing a little bit more affection. A little more gregarious kind of. Yeah. And plus the money. And so, you know, rather than try to Ouch. not necessarily ruin, but like taint the good time you're having when you have such short visit with your brother and everybody being together for Christmas, you know, you just kind of like most people do in families, you just kind of don't address it. You don't want to rock the boat. You want to make sure you, everybody has a good Christmas. Been there. Yeah. And so, like I said, she drives to the airport, drops him off. And normally he'd just, you know, go be like, all right, see you later or whatever, you know, whatever it is. And just go in and then they'd talk the next time they spoke. You know, they would talk on the phone a lot. And um, instead this time he started to walk, he went in and she could see him, you know, through the windows, starting to walk away. And then he turned around, came back, like knocked on the window and did like the whole Mwah, like blow you a kiss thing. And she's like, it was really weird. It was not something he had ever done. This guy's in his 50s at this point. You know, you're yeah. kind of established who you are and how you act at that point. <laughs> One would hope. If not, there's like, yeah, you know. So that's the 29th now by January 2nd or 3rd. His mom gets this call that he got to Florida, got in a small plane right then, and apparently had been, had just rented a house in the Bahamas and was going to go there. And that's when he went down. And um, so, again, they're starting to figure this out. They're like kind of hindsight, like, what? Like, this is all weird. And none of his friends are giving us the same stories. Some people are like, oh, yeah, we heard that they were dating. Other people were like, I don't fucking know who Betty is. I don't know what the, what you're talking about. Other people are like, don't ask me questions about Mario. You need to stop yeah. asking. You need to stop asking anyone questions about it. And um, then they start really getting curious. And after a couple months, they receive a call from a mysterious man who refused to identify himself. Of course, this is early 80s, so no caller ID. And he has a clearly disguised, muffled kind of voice. And he essentially warns the family, you need to stop looking into Mario's death. He is gone. You know what happened to him. 
That's the story. Move on. And now they're really intrigued and really pissed. And now they really want to know what the hell went happened. Mm-hmm. So they're filing, they're calling people, they're, you know, really reaching out. And after a couple years, they um, finally get word from the life insurance company. And they come back and say, we've done all the research we can. Um, there's absolutely no way that he could have gone down in a plane crash uh, because that plane with the number that you gave us has been sold three times since he died. Ew, that's sketchy. So there's no way. Because if he went down in the ocean, headed to the Bahamas, the plane would be down there too. Mm-hmm. So not possible. Sorry, no. Without proof of death, we cannot reward the life insurance money. You need to give us proof of death. So they continue searching everywhere they turn. Dead end. Silent friends of his. No still just mixed messages weird stories finally in 1989 the family just gives up they're like we can't put ourselves through this anymore and um but they held out hope of maybe you know maybe he was mixed up in all this drug stuff um his daughter tina remembered when she was in her mid-teens she got in a big fight with her mom and so she went to live with her dad kind of a typical you know teen thing to do when you have divorced parents you think Mm -hmm. you're gonna have it better with the other one and mario loved his kids but he was not the um on duty parent that their mom was (laughs) he was like yeah you can come to live with me fine but they were pretty much roommates (laughs) and (laughs) he's like you know where the kitchen is (laughs) yeah it pissed her off because it was kind of like she had this idea in her mind of like how it was gonna be you know how how it is when you're a teenager um yeah so she's pissed because he's not fulfilling this idea she has in her head but also she remembers now as you know they've all decided like we just can't go through this anymore we don't we don't know we don't have closure but we just have to decide that yeah he's gone she remembers you know what now that i think about it he had to be mixed up in whatever this drug bust was because I remember being there and kind of sort of hear, overhearing different parts of conversations when they're talking about measurements of things. And I, I saw drugs and I saw large amounts of cash being handed from different people to the other. And there were a lot of 
drug-related conversations and transactional-type, major, like, movement-type conversations happened. Lots of, you know, those same guys that all were busted um, were in and out of the house. And so she's like, but it's weird because he wasn't arrested. So if he was mixed up in this, why wasn't he arrested? So the family decides, okay, maybe he went into the witness protection program. Or maybe he chose to just disappear. He was afraid of these people. And like faked his own death kind of a vibe. Yeah. And some of his friends, however, say that um, they believe he was murdered by either the cartel that he they got all the drugs from because again 300 million dollars a year this thing got busted mm -hmm. um or just murdered by some of these people because if you're not arrested but everyone around you is that's like the fbi just gave him a death sentence mm-hmm by not arresting him. And so it could have been maybe one of those people. And um, the other story is that he moved to the Bahamas and just went right in with the cartel rather than being on the US side of things. He's now down in like Colombia working for this cartel as a pilot because he was so skilled. It's possible. One of the guys, um, the Baloo dude, <laughs> wrote a book. Is it called The Bare Necessities? I'm just kidding. It's called <laughs> I could not myself. Hot Shoe Baloo was apparently one of his nicknames. Like, I get it. Hot Foot, Lead Foot. So he was Hot Shoe Baloo. Um, he wrote a book about going through all that stuff. It was very, like, more centered on his own, his very own experience going through it. Um, he... Uh, he states that he saw a um he said it was like a barbara walter special but it turned out it was a different network and a different special but it was still um like that style where kind of a eyewitness on kind of a thing like in-depth report on the drug problems coming out of Colombia and into the US and it was in the mid 90s apparently so uh there's a podcast that go does a full like series on figuring out like 
where the hell is Mario Rossi kind of a thing and goes around, interviews a bunch of people and they did a really amazing job. It's from Wondery. It's called The Sneak. It's their third season. So highly recommend it. Um, but uh, they go and interview him and he says about this special like, hey, I watched this. I was in jail. I remember it vividly. They're talking about all these drugs that are coming out of Colombia, and man, it brought back some memories. And then all of a sudden, I see in the background, there's Mario Rossi. He's one of the pilots in the background. You don't see him really quick. You don't see him super long. It's a really quick, like, it's just like the back kind of corner part of the side of his face but you can't mistake him and so this you know podcast host that does all this he tracks down with the very mixed up information that this guy gives him tracks down that special and he freeze frames and he's like well yeah i guess you could say that that's him so he brings it to Mario's daughter, Tina. He's like, okay, we got a hold of, you know, what's his face, Baloo. Um, and uh, he said this, he said that he has to be alive. He's gotta be in Columbia, blah, 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 because he saw this special and I tracked it down and here you go, let's watch this. So they watch it, she's like, Hmm. And they, you know, freeze frame. It's kind of grainy because mid nineties. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's a, it's a freeze frame of him in the background. <clears throat> so he's just this tiny little like blurry face basically. So, <clears throat> because yeah, it's like this freeze frame of, this really quick clip and a guy in the background, it's like two guys in the background that are the two pilots and they're like loading up all this marijuana, cannabis, whatever you want to call it into this plane. And um, you don't really see the face. It's just kind of like the ear and some of his hair and like kind of the sort of backside of his face. Um, And she's like, well, I guess you you could say that's him and she like runs over grabs a picture and she's like okay so that guy parts his hair on the right she looks at a picture she looks at another picture and she's like yeah my dad parted his hair on the right I just I don't know like do I think that it's him because I want it to be him or is it just a guy that kind of looks like him we just don't know and so you know she couldn't really definitively thought think yes or no um and she kind of just is like i just i don't know i i don't want to hold on to that though you know we've essentially in our minds all moved on and buried him when he didn't show up for my grandma his mom's funeral that was his favorite person in the world if he was still alive 
he would have found a way to be there. I guess the family had someone be on guard, basically, do watch at all hours at the funeral home up until they buried his mom. And no one came and no one that they didn't expect to come to the funeral or, you know, nobody came at night, nobody. So <clears throat> the family kind of decided at that point that there's no way he's alive because he would have absolutely found a way. But I mean, how can you know if you're staying away from your family? So I don't know, but, um, the last official place that he was ever seen was that December 29th, 1982, blowing his sister a kiss through the window at the Philadelphia International Airport. And aside from that, he's just gone. And Wild. They tracked down the mysterious Betty. And she said she couldn't remember at first who um she said yeah it's that was such a long time ago um i you know i'm in my late 70s i just don't remember things as well as i used to but yeah we we were we weren't really together together but we kind of dated a little bit at the time, but at first she couldn't really remember who had told her to call the family. Um, but it's still, you know, no one official called the family. No, you know, like rescue effort type people, no police officers, no person from a morgue, no, you know, person from the Coast Guard. I mean, no one that you could like think of even trying to go down the line of people that would be somewhat official to give a, you know, call to a family to tell them that their family member's dad um, made that call. So, yeah, so that's all bullshit for sure. Right. So they finally were like, well, how did you know then? How how could you know that he was dead in order to call the family? And how did you even have the family's number if you guys weren't really dating? You weren't like living together or anything. I mean, it's not one of those things you have unless you're like serious with someone. Mm-hmm. She finally remembered that it was that Gary Ballou guy that told her to call the family. And the way he presented it was like, oh, my God, you can't I you won't believe it. He put he died. You've got to call the family kind of a deal. And then when they finally interviewed him, they spoke to him a couple different times. And he. He got really mad because the first time they 
got an interview with him, he said, well, my wife at the time, who's now his ex-wife, she, it was, he said, it was like 10 years later, she was a, she drew blood at the whatever hospital and that was her job. So she was a phlebotomist. Um, and she drew his blood. She took his blood. It was like 10 years after that. So they got, they did their research. They figured out who his ex-wife was. They said, yep, sure enough, she was a phlebotomist at that ho- that hospital at that time that Gary was saying. And she's like, no, I did not ever draw his blood then. In fact, not once ever, even when I knew him, even when he was alive, did I ever draw his blood? Like, why would I have, why would he have come to an area where he's known as a very unmistakable looking man? Why would he go there to get his blood drawn if he's actually alive and hiding for his life? And they're like, yeah, that's a good point. That's why we wanted to ask you. (laughs) So this Gary guy is just making up a lot of stories. And when they ask him about it and they're like, why would your ex-wife tell us that that didn't happen? He's like, well, she didn't want to be involved in this. And they're like, well, you involved her. Mm -hmm. And just mad. And he still sort of had, in his 80s, still had a lot of that... uh, like gangster kind of attitude to him. Like he scared these people a little bit. You could tell they got a little nervy. <laughs> Jesus. So I don't know that, I mean, there's so many possibilities. They interviewed an FBI agent who, I mean, obviously had since been retired. Uh, And the guy was like, well, I didn't work on that case, but I was in the area when that case happened. And I can tell you that there's no official record that he was ever a witness or testifying. So I don't really know why they would put him in witness protection. Mm -hmm. Maybe... You know, best case scenario, maybe he did inform on someone, but you actually get a chance to say goodbye to your family. Obviously, you don't know where you're going, so you can't tell them where you're going or what your name's going to be or any of that. But you you're given a chance to say goodbye to people you need to say goodbye to in your when you're going away. <laughs> so the fact that he did not do that to his family, like, he didn't say any goodbyes, really to like, you know, tell them, don't worry about me. Yeah, I feel like that guy went and lived Um, in another country a bunch. Maybe he went and lived in Colombia. Maybe he just died. And maybe his bones are in Colombia. But, uh, when they were recording the series it was 2020 it the final episode actually came out march of this year um 
it's like March 20 something. Um, but, uh, so when they were filming it, the family said, well, he, he would have just turned 88. So even, even if he did run away and, you know, live in Columbia or wherever, he's probably not still alive. I mean, Maybe that kind of stress doesn't promote longevity. <laughs> so still, it's a pretty crazy story. And I, don't know, I just find it so interesting that um, 70 people were arrested in this crazy, huge web of smugglers and dealers all tied in one way or another to nascar <laughs> so weird also turns out lots of that in nascar <laughs> like a few of these guys went on to have more like that billy harvey guy did not learn his lesson he did the same damn thing like two years later got busted for it again <laughs> jesus and then had other drug related infractions of like trying to offload or grow <laughs> many years he's since passed away i think they said that he passed away in 2007 i could have that wrong but he is no longer on the living plane of this earth that we know of depending on your beliefs i don't know <laughs> He's considered dead. <laughs> <laughs> there was a funeral. So yeah, they weren't able to interview him, but yeah, there's, there was even a NASCAR related drug bust in 2020. <laughs> okay. So first of all, guys, it's all turning the same direction, right? If they already know that you're probably gonna be involved in it because it has a history of that, uh -huh. why do you keep doing it? <laughs> like what is high the fucking point? risk, high reward. Good Lord. They are not cautious people. They're living on the edge kind of people. Fucking go skydiving then, for fuck's sake. Like, Jesus. They go race car driving, but it's expensive. Oof. So they gotta fund it. With drogas. Oh, drugs. Well, that uh, pretty much wraps things up. Unless you have any last words for the episode. <laughs> Any last words? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't think I have any last words. I um, am looking forward to a not quite as hot week mm -hmm. as it's been lately. It's in the low 70s. I'm considering wearing leggings tomorrow. <laughs> That's about as exciting as my world is right now, you guys. <laughs> You're all happy about it. I'm getting sad. <laughs> oh jesus oh boy all right well i think that sums it up right there sure um, enough until 
next week, uh, drink good local beer. And you're welcome for the nightmares. For more information, we can be found on Instagram at Seattle underscore on underscore tap. Email at Seattle on tap at gmail.com or our website, Seattle on tap.com. You can also like us on Facebook and all of the Seattle on tap original music is provided by bubble bathism courtesy of the Subterranot recording collective. <laughs>